or, or listen on as I read now Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4, where we read of the sin offerings to be distinguished from the burnt, the tribute, and the peace offerings. Hear now the word of God. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of the sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of burnt offering which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take from it all the fat of the bull as the sin offering and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that, that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the, to the liver above the kidneys. He shall remove as it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering and the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. But the bull's hide and all its flesh with its head and legs, its entrails and offal. The whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood and fire with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which should not be done and are guilty, when uh, the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus uh, he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them. Then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly. When the ruler has a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord, his God and anything which should not be done and is guilty. Or if his sin, which he has committed, comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it at the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And he shall burn all its fat on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice 
of the peace offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the uh, for him concerning his sin. It shall be forgiven him. If anyone uh, of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty. Or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, the female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat as fat is removed from the sacrifice of the of the uh, of the peace offering and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him and it shall be forgiven him. If he brings a lamb as a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. Then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove its fat as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has committed and it shall be forgiven him. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the words which we have now read together and ask you that we might uh, together through the preaching of the word and the hearing of the preaching uh, come to a more sure and solid faith in uh, the sin offerings which are offered for sins and the forgiveness which is granted unto us who offer them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here is the fourth class of offering. Uh, perhaps it, it seems this now on a new day, uh, as, as is indicated uh, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, where you don't have that in chapters 2 and 3, so uh, something a bit new. You had the burnt, the tribute or the grain, and then the peace offering belonging together. And spoken of by the Lord on the same day, most likely, and it's now spoken of on a new day. Matthew Henry uh, says that the first three were more ancient. They could be found in earlier days, but the sin offering was something new. It was particular to the tabernacle, instituted here from the tabernacle. Andrew Bonar, in his commentary, similarly imagines that the sin offering was something which was to be seen in addition to the three uh, which belonged together. And so the, the essence of the sin offering is found in verse 2. If any person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them. The essence of the sin offering, in other words, was sin. Sin itself. For in the burnt offering, it was atonement and reconciliation that was sought and found. In the tribute offering, thanksgiving. And the peace offering, peace. But having found these things in a more general way, there was ever uh, in the life and the consciousness uh, and the experience of the believer a newfound discovery of sin. Sins committed by he who was already reconciled. Atonement already having been found in the burnt offering and on the day of atonement. Tribute being offered along with it. Thanksgiving. Following this, the peace concluding the ritual. The sinner 
at peace with God or the saint, and yet still a sinner, still aware of sins he committed day by day. God now indicates through the sin offering, in addition to those three, might seek uh, atonement of these lesser sins or for these lesser sins. He might, as the confession says, repent of particular sins particularly. Again, sins which he committed now as a believer, as one who is at peace with God. The question which he might have in his day-to-day living, was there any provision for these? And this is what the sin offering was for. Something in addition to the more general nature of the first three kinds of offerings. Something now more particular and specific. A help which God offered in his grace to the troubled believer's conscience. Again, arising from sins which he discovered later. And here we see how God takes notice of every sin, but also how thoroughly he deals with it. And so as sin, uh, the sin offering dealt with sin in particular, we need to define sin. And there are several elements of sin which are highlighted in the sin offering. And the first is simply sin, uh, transgression. Sin is seen as transgression of God's commandments. Verse 2, again, If any person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them. It is the doing of that which ought not to be done. It is breaking the law of God by some overt act. Sins of commission, not of omission, though those are sins too. It's easier, uh, Matthew Henry says this, to, to remedy sins of omission. When you don't do something you should have done, how do you repent of that? Well, simply do the deed. Start doing what you ought to have done, what you weren't doing, what we're supposed to do. But what about sins of omission? Deeds which are already done that ought not to have been done. The sinfulness and the guilt of which, in the case uh, envisioned here, which do not occur to the offender until later but which, having been done, cannot be undone. Sin as transgression. But sin also is something which carries knowledge with it. It is something which is defined and which can and ought to be known. In other words, sin is not some, uh, it is not some undefined vagary, as we sometimes uh, think of the Christian life and the law of God. Just as obedience is Precise, so is disobedience. And yet, what is envisioned here is something which is common to the experience of many believers, every believer, and that is that it is often unknown. Sin is something that ought to be known, but is often unknown. That is the case which is supposed here, the one who sins unwittingly. And and here uh, we might underline the tragedy of sin itself, and that is the fact that it deceives even the one who is at peace with God and who is reconciled by the blood of Of the burnt and the peace offering. And that the sinful mind. Even the redeemed sinful mind. Can easily be deceived and aware. uh, Unaware rather of the sinfulness of the sins which we commit. But the idea here which uh, God is indicating through the sin offering. Is that sin can be known and ought to be known. It is something once more that can. That can be clearly defined and pinpointed in the law of God. So that man is able to know what sin is. Uh, He may know those sinful deeds which he ought not to do. And if he does them, 
unaware of their sinfulness, again, as is envisioned here, he might at least later become aware of the sinfulness of them. He might come to a knowledge of his sin. Sin is something which may be known through the law. Sin also thirdly involves guilt. God uh, is envisioning one uh, who has contracted guilt through his sin. He hasn't just committed sin, but because of that, he's guilty. Just as soon as the, the, the sin is committed, whether he realizes it or not. It isn't once he knows that he's guilty. It's only once he knows that he becomes aware of his guilt. And guilt uh, has to do with one's legal standing before God as a sinner. A sinner is someone who is guilty before God. That's something Paul makes abundantly clear in Romans, as we've seen. And thus, one who stands uh, under condemnation for his sin. One who is regarded by God as a transgressor, uh, transgressor of his law. But thank God, the fourth thing which we can say about sin is that it can be forgiven. This is another key word of the sin offering. His sin shall be forgiven. Not in any way we please. Again, we're not dealing in the realm of undefined vagaries. That's the value of all of these offerings as they shed light on the one great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Nor can sin be forgiven or pardoned simply by our heartfelt promise to God that we won't do it anymore. We're sorry, Lord. We won't commit these sins any longer. That's how the world operates, but that isn't how God operates. That is not how pardon is secured and granted unto the sinner. Remission comes, as the sin offering plainly tells us, along with all the others, only by blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There can be no remission in the economy and in the government of God. That is the inviolable principle of God's government, which is uh, stated as one of the keynotes of the book of Hebrews. Again, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. In other words, until a life is forfeited, as we later see in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, for this is what the blood represents, the life which is now forfeited on the altar of sacrifice. And until that has occurred, until the wages of sin have been paid, the guilt of sin remains. But there must also at the altar of sacrifice be confession. This is something which also attaches itself to the idea of remission. Not just sacrifice, but confession. Man becoming aware of his sin confesses it before God and there looks for pardon from God. In the blood of atonement at the altar. That is the transaction which is envisioned. Man not standing at a distance but coming near. Unto the sin offering with confession. And thank God we know. That with God there is mercy and compassion. And in him there is a will to forgive. The penitent sinner. The next thing that we notice having defined the four uh, crucial elements of sin is uh, distinctions which are made with regard to sin. And this is something that we also find in the sin offering. Sin may be spoken of first generally. The sinfulness of the people. uh, A sinful nature which is inherited from Adam. The guilt of Adam's first sin. A life of sin. A heart which is full of sin. That is sin considered generally. As a general aspect of our lives. That is what the burnt offerings dealt with. And especially what was dealt with in the day of atonement. 
sin in its universal aspects in the life of the of the of the believers. But there is a second class of sin, and these are a class of this is a class of sins that Scripture warns against most strongly. And and we ought to see that sin offerings did not have reference to these, and these are sins of brazen defiance. I think at in the Old Testament, they're called sin of the high hand, the willful disobedience of the ungodly. And against these, Scripture uh, is full of warnings that a man might come and even offer his sin offerings, but he will not be forgiven. In the Old Testament, uh, such men who committed such sins were to be cut off, uh, a picture of New Testament excommunication, cut off and cast out of the assembly. The man who holds God's law in contempt. The man who sins without remorse or confession or repentance. Uh, The man who will not be corrected even when his sin is found out and brought to his attention as is envisioned here. This is something we find in the the New Testament as well, especially in Hebrews where we find uh, the ceremonial law brought to fulfillment and expounded in the New Testament. It's very principle. Described and, 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 and listen especially. These are sobering words. And they're difficult words to preach. But there is no sacrifice for these kinds of sins. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says. For if we sin willfully, willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law. That's the idea, despising the law, died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite to the spirit of grace. For we know him that has said vengeance Belongs unto me, I will recompense, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These are words which ought to make us fearful. And to stand fast against sin. And to listen to the accusations of our brother or of conscience when we have transgressed the law of God. Because we are told that against such sins, the unrepentant, willful sinning of the apostate, there is no sacrifice. There is for him no provision in the law whereby his sins may be forgiven. Christ's blood avails not for him. I don't know if a a more fearful word was ever spoken in scripture. There is only judgment, fiery judgment reserved for him. How fearful it is, he says, to fall into the hands of the living God. But there is a third class, and this is the class which the sin offering has to deal with, and that is sins of ignorance or sins of infirmity, sins of weakness, which are in view here. Something which is common to the experience of the believer, the believer who sins and doesn't know it and only comes to know it later. And how often we, like David in Psalm 19, ask God to reveal to us our hidden faults. Again, the sins which we committed but didn't even know it. The daily sins of our daily living, which we commit unawares. That's that's what's in view here. How often we, like David, discover to our chagrin that there were so many faults which were hidden deep down and, and which we did not know. 
or perhaps because of ignorance. Whether as to our own hearts or as to the law of God and the deceitfulness of sin, we simply find out after the fact that something we did that we regarded either as innocent or right was in fact sinful. And now it stands before our eyes and our conscience with perfect clarity. Such a thing, let me say again, was common to believers under the old covenant, and it remains common even today. This is the daily stuff of the Christian life. We're sinning all the time. And very often, we only become aware of such sins afterwards. The sad tendency of believers, let me say, being very frank, is that when accused in such cases, we tend to defend ourselves anyways, even though our conscience or our brother accuse us. It is very rare to find a man who will confess, as David did, I have broken God's law. I am the sinner. But God here says, and he pleads, as it were, with his church through his priests, don't do that. Don't defend yourself once sin has been defined. Do not try to vindicate or uh, to lessen the sin which you have committed. Realize instead that things might be put right by confession, by repentance, and by sacrifice. Realize that there is always, for all people, and we'll get to that soon, a sacrifice for sins which were committed in, in ignorance, the daily sins of the reconciled believer who is at peace with God. That is the course the believer must always take. Once the deed is done and he becomes aware of it and it cannot be undone, do not vindicate yourself, but cry out for forgiveness. And yet still, speaking of this, it must alarm us to some extent to realize that such a thing is possible and that it is common that so often the believer sins without knowing it. That we as those who are reconciled and awakened to the holiness of God's law and our consciences now become tender before God and so our hearts as well. Seeing now with clarity the sinfulness of sin still might sin out of ignorance again as a daily occurrence. And yet the reality which uh, God is reckoning with here and asking us to realize as well is that this is this is the life of sinners, even reconciled sinners. This is the sad state in which we find ourselves that still the knowledge which we possess concerning God's law and of ourselves and of sin is partial. It is not perfect. We do not yet see things as clearly as one day we will. And so often uh, the reality and the sinfulness of sin remains hidden to us in our fallen state for we are redeemed but not perfected. And until we are, our conscience will sometimes take time to catch up with our sins. That is lamentable. That is reason enough to cry out to God for his grace and his mercy. But it is the common experience of believers. But thank God we see that even for such a thing, there is remedy and there is forgiveness. That is what God is telling us here. There is a sin offering for sins committed in ignorance. But then let me notice as a third point, uh, as to the sacrifice itself, the sin offering as a specific class, we notice certain features that all, uh, all four different kinds of sin offerings held in common. Uh, the first is the selection of the animal, as always. Every sacrifice had that, um, an animal without blemish, prefiguring uh, the perfection and the unspotted 
holy, undefiled nature of Christ, our sacrifice. Number two, there was the presentation of the animal as a sacrifice uh, before the Lord. And the sin offering in particular as it was brought and offered uh, before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle was to be offered with confession. There was then the laying on of hands on the head of that which was offered to signify as ever the principle of substitution essential to that of atonement. Everything in these sacrificial rites prefiguring uh, that crucial principle. There was forth the slaying of the animal, acknowledging that there could be no atonement until a life was forfeited, either the sinners or the substitute. Number five, the blood is poured out and applied to the altar. In the case of the priests and the people, uh, to the veil and the altar of incense. And then in, in the case of all four, uh, it was concluded with the blood offered or, or, or sprinkled at, at the base and on the horns of the altar of burnt offering in the court. And so we find as ever the priest participating in this whole transaction. And by the blood, we are again reminded that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the sprinkling of blood, there's no sanctification. Number six, the burning of part of the animal on the altar of burnt offering, much like the peace offering. And we even read it is to resemble the peace offering. And with this, uh, we read this several times. Atonement is achieved and forgiveness is pronounced there. They shall or he shall be forgiven. And so we see how in every type of offering, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the keynote was the idea of atonement and the remission of sins. But still, there is something else which we find as a seventh aspect in the case of all the various sin offerings. And that is, uh, and, and note, of note, this goes beyond the pronouncement of forgiveness. Atonement has been achieved, and yet God says, I want you to do one final thing as a way of enacting the atonement which has been Secured, And that is that the remaining part of the animal was to be brought outside the camp and burnt up with fire there. And only then was it properly pronounced and considered as a sin offering. The question which we have, however, is why this extra step? The answer which I would give is that because God would have us see what he achieves when he makes atonement for sin. Atonement having already been achieved, now he illustrates what that means. How by sacrifice, God makes a full end of sin. And and likewise, how we should feel about those sins which have been pardoned and confessed. God is saying to the sinner, they are taken away. They are removed from his presence in which the sinner now dwells. And they're burned up with fire. They are wholly consumed as though they were no more. An end made To the very sins which burdened us and caused us to go to the Lord and confess our sins. Sins which we became aware of after the fact. But God is also indicating how we should deal with those same sins. The very sins which he has pardoned and put away. Indicating to the sinner, I want you to put them as far away from yourselves as you possibly can. Here is the path of repentance that ought to accompany confession and forgiveness. We should deal with sin as thoroughly as God does. Put an end to the sin you confess. That is what God is saying. And so seek pardon by the sacrifice of Christ. 
and meet him there outside the camp where he became our sin offering and through him repentance. As the writer to the Hebrews says, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle for the bodies of these beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin and are burnt without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. We find there forgiveness, but also sanctification. But lastly, I would notice the four different classes of sin offerings and the significance of each. We have something which is common throughout uh, the, the offerings. If so-and-so offers a sacrifice, let him do so like this. If so-and-so uh, uh, of a different class uh, sins, let him offer like this and so forth. And we, we begin with the anointed priest in verse 3, who, who was most likely the high priest, Not the common priest, but the high priest. The question is, he, of all people, what should he do when he sinned? And uh, especially when he transgressed the very laws that he was meant to perform as a priest. And he only became aware of it afterwards. Contracting guilt not only for himself, but for the people. How tragic it was if he, of all people, should sin in his office especially performing his sacred tasks, given his office as the high priest. But it was, let us see, at the same time unavoidable, for he was a sinner too. And the law itself recognizes and made specific provisions for the sins even of the high priest. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for he, for, for he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Really, you get the sense in those three verses that what is in view is the sin offering. And I don't know that I was ever struck with that so much as I was until just now. But you notice the relation that he bore to the people, not just in his office, but in his sin. By his sin, once more, he would bring guilt upon them, not only himself, for he was their mediator. And yet his office neither excused him from sin, nor did it take him out of the reach of those same sacrifices for sin that he offered on behalf of the people. No, he might, like them, offer sacrifices for himself, just as he offered sacrifices for their benefit as well. For their standing depended on his. And if the priest of Israel be unholy and unrepented of sin, what then of the people? How sad is their state? Much like Malachi, which we read earlier. How sad when the people stumble for want of holiness in their ministers. But where such holiness is lacking, God indicates through the the sin offering. And where the minister has failed in some respect... Everything depends on his willingness simply to acknowledge it in the presence of the people, namely his need for forgiveness. I have sinned and I, like you, stand in need of forgiveness and I, like you, stand in need of the blood which pardons. Few things so stand in the way of the welfare of the church as ministers who will not acknowledge their sin, especially once it has been discovered and made clear to them. 
to them. Men who will not repent of sin once it has been made clear. But those who do, those ministers who stand over God's churches when they sin, what blessings this might bring by repentance and by confession. As Bonar says, thinking now of the high priest performing the whole ritual, what a sermon this was to the the people. To find there the priest's repentance and his humble confession of sin, seeking forgiveness like them through atonement. What a sermon he preached to the people. Here he declared for all who sinned, remission could be found by sacrifice with confession, even for himself. In many ways, I think, nothing that he did was more valuable or profound in the lives and the eyes of the people than this. That he should plainly indicate to the people that he stood in need of the same sacrifices for salvation as they. But next we see Sins of the whole congregation, which can either refer to nations or churches. I think it is better to refer to churches, but it could also refer to nations. Especially as we find in the case of Israel, the nation was the church and vice versa. But what we notice especially, once again, is the relationship between the whole congregation and the priest. Because of the four classes of sin offerings, it was these two that were almost identical. But when you come to the common people and when you come to the rulers, you find that the, 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 the sin offering looks a bit different. But the sin offering of the priest and the sin offering of the whole congregation, strangely, was almost exactly the same, if not exactly the same. I, I'm not exactly sure, but... I, I'm almost sure in saying that. And, and for this obvious reason, uh, namely, again, the relation the priests and the people shared. The high priest and the whole congregation. As he stood as their mediator, so his sin was to be dealt with in the same way as theirs. And so theirs was to be dealt with in the same way as his. And here we notice... The sin of a congregation, how it is a whole people, a whole congregation might be led into sin together and only become aware of it after the fact. This is not the sin of individuals that comes out later in the fourth class. This is the sin of peoples. A church, for instance, as we find in Revelation chapters two and three, when Jesus says, I have something against you and he's speaking to the whole congregation. A a church who perhaps by carelessness or neglect has become worldly. How often, indeed, in uh, the epistles we find Paul rebuking the whole of the church and calling them to repentance. Perhaps they've tolerated sin they shouldn't. We find that in in Jesus' message to the churches. Or perhaps the church has become formal as opposed to warm and godly. And in so many other ways she might realize, either by the sin of her ministers or by her own carelessness and neglect, That she did what she ought not to do. That she tolerated sin she ought not to have. And realizing it only when it is too late. Once the deed is done. The whole congregation. God says represented in the elders and the priesthood. Must seek remission through sacrifice and confession. Nations likewise. When they have erred and begin to realize it. Ought to seek the Lord through repentance. Excuse me. At the altar of the cross. And nowhere else. And why? That judgments might be averted. That God may not judge the whole of the nation for sins that they have committed together. But should they do so? 
Should congregations or should nations come to the Lord in the spirit of prayer and of repentance, seeking forgiveness at the altar of the cross, God declares at the end of that section, they shall be forgiven. Next, that of rulers, either of nations or churches, though it seems to apply most, I think, to the rulers of nations as priests really symbolize the rulers of churches. And here the greatest of men must know, God says, that they serve the Lord. And that their judgments and their laws are under God's judgments and God's laws. They are ministers of righteousness, of of his righteousness. And nothing makes this so clear as the fact that God takes notice of their sins. And know that they might acknowledge it is so by a humble confession of sin. That they are, again, his servants and his ministers. And by their ready acknowledgement that they can expect no forgiveness from God, but by sacrifice, they do not once more stand over, but under the law of God. The expectations, as I indicated in the last point here, are are somewhat less. uh, As in the first two classes, I mean, in terms of what he is to offer. And what the priests are to perform on his behalf, it isn't quite as costly, it isn't quite as thorough. As though to indicate the ruler, though he is greater than an individual, is not greater than the people. He is still less than them. But still, let me say again, he does not stand above but beneath God's law and God's justice. He is meant to acknowledge plainly to the people by his confession that he knows this. For when he sins, he has transgressed not his own laws, but God's. And oh, that we might have such rulers. And oh, that we must lament that we do not. That we must cry out to God. Where can such rulers be found? Who say to the people and to God, I have transgressed the law of God. And but for the the bleeding wounds of my Savior Jesus Christ, I cannot hope to find pardon. And any law which I enact is only in service to Almighty God. Those who with David are not afraid to confess. David, you remember, was not just... A great Christian, but he was a great king. Oh God, against you only have I sinned. When's the last time you've heard a ruler say that? But with you there is forgiveness. But lastly, there is that of the common people. And, and here, just uh, the idea is that of any common individual. Not, uh, not the whole people, that's the second class. But anyone who wasn't a priest or a ruler. Just a regular person. What happens when he sins and he becomes aware of it afterwards? He might be tempted to think in light of the prior points, well, my sin wasn't as great as the priest. It wasn't as great as the whole congregation or of rulers. Perhaps God doesn't notice or care. And yet God indicates to him that I do notice and that I do care. And that there isn't a single sin which has ever been committed that has escaped his notice. Not by a single person. Even the smallest sins of the smallest men. Of the smallest class of sins. Sins of ignorance. Come under the scrutiny of God's justice and his judgments. It is a sin like all the rest. A transgression of God's law. Incurring guilt upon the sinner. And which can only be remedied. Through atonement and by forgiveness. Something which is counted by God. And recorded in his book. A sin like any other requiring the shedding of blood if there is to be remission 
Oh, but once more, we can say with God, there is mercy, there is forgiveness. He who who makes a sin offering, even the least among these, he shall be forgiven. And so we notice as I close that all the variety that is found in the sacrifices, that is among the various sin offerings and even amongst the various offerings, that they all amount to the same thing. They all point in the same direction. It's very easy to see the typology at, at play seeing how each of these in their own way and then together point to Christ himself. For there is, we know, as scripture tells us, only one sacrifice for sin, not many, but one. And it is not found in the blood of bulls and goats. All of these things only ever pointed to him and exhibited the great principle of atonement by blood that he would later achieve at the cross. But we know, and the saints of the Old uh, Old Testament must have known, that forgiveness and atonement could never stand on the strength of the blood of bulls and goats. Nor could their needed repetition ever offer peace to the conscience of those who offered. Even the priests themselves, the writer of the Hebrews tells us, the priests themselves must have known how painfully obvious it was. But insofar as they point to what Christ would later do, we rejoice to call Christ our sin offering. Just as he, pre- he was prefigured in all the other sacrifices. For all that they pre- prefigured are accomplished in his one great sacrifice. And the one great principle that was common to them. Is the great thing he does. Namely to pardon sin and the sinner. Reconciling him to God by the blood of his sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12. Uh, now here's a, here's a verse I didn't quite get in the sermon. Let me turn there. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. There indeed is the glory of the gospel and of his sacrifice. Not that there are many, not that they need to be repeated, but by one sacrifice he put away sin forever. Only we could add to that point, along with the writers of the Hebrews, not only do we find a sacrifice that is altogether better than theirs, one which was unblemished, holy, innocent, undefiled, truly, but we also find a better priest. And a better priesthood. For he was not one who needed to offer first sacrifice for his own sins like the priests of old. Here is part of the excellence of his priesthood. His sin offering was exclusively for others. For he had no sin, nor would he ever. A spotless sacrifice offered by a perfect high priest. Do you see, to capture the whole thrust of the argument of Hebrews, how much better things are in the new covenant and how much more uh, glorious the mediator of this new covenant appears to us on this point. He answers to every requirement uh, of the old covenant sacrifice, but at the same time he excels them in every way. He makes by his sacrifice outside the camp a full end to sin. And he inspires in us at the same time feelings that we must deal with sin in the same way. That is, he makes a full end of the guilt of sin. So we must make a full end of their practice, leaving them on the ash heap of his sacrifice and regard them as they're fully conquered and destroyed. That is the proper and the full effect of the sin offering. And which it was meant to inspire, as Henry says, Matthew Henry, both to prize Christ, our sin offering, and at the same time to hate sin. To hate it as fully and completely as God does. 
and to let that be evident in our practice as those who are pardoned. And insofar as we are ever becoming aware of new sins and hidden faults we were not before, let us thank God always that there is remission, even for sins which were committed in ignorance. That we are ever bid to come to Christ, our sin offering, one who is willing to cry out to God as our intercessor, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Amen. And let us respond now to God's word uh, in song, singing as our final hymn of the month, uh, a cappella 463, only uh, as a new practice, which we're going to try this month, just to set the pace, singing uh, the first verse accompanied to music and then uh, the piano will will uh, will fade out for the final verses. So please stand him 463.